Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Coral Chihuahua. Second inversion chords. Second inversion chords. Today we have a guest joining us, a composer who has won numerous awards, been shortlisted eight times for the British Composer Awards, and in 2020 she was honoured by the Ivor Novello Academy, an outstanding collection for a consistently excellent body of work. Gramophone magazine have said of her, she possesses a communicative gift that is very rare in modern music. Welcome Cecilia McDowell. Well, hello. Very nice to have you with us, Cecilia. Good morning, Robert. You're here as well. Good morning, I am indeed. Good morning, everyone. Over the course of this chat, we're going to look back at your, your musical career. But let's start with something which is right up to date. Um, this is a track called Good News from New England, uh, which the 16 will be performing this year as part of their choral pilgrimage. Cecilia, just tell us a, qu- a quick couple of words about this. Yes, Good News from New England is a complete piece. Well, it hasn't been finished yet. It is a work that was commissioned by the City Chamber Choir to uh, mark the arrival of the Pilgrim Fathers in 1620. And so it is based on uh, journals that come from that time, 1622 to 23.
And lo, the winds did blow us ever to the north, so that we crossed the seas to seek the Lord's right worship and the gospel's sweet simplicity. That was An Unexpected Shore from the work Good News from New England by Cecilia McDowell. The 16, conducted by Harry Christophers with uh, soprano Alexandra Kidgel singing there. Um, Cecilia, those are the words of, of William Bradford, the governor of the Plymouth colony, writing in about 1630. Um, it's immediately evocative stuff, isn't it? It is, really. And and also it taps into what is such a universal situation now, the, the movement from one place to another through belief or through persecution. And the Mayflower pilgrims were really driven to explore and find another place. And an un, unexpected shore seemed to be the thing that epitomised this. This is a theme which we'll revisit actually a little bit later on in relation to, to one of your other works. Um, but for the moment, why don't we sort of move backwards uh, and tell us a little bit about your sort of early musical beginnings. Uh, are you from a musical family? Well, yes. Um, my mother was a linguist. She taught Russian and French. And my father was a professional flautist and uh, was principal flute at the Royal Opera House, which, of course, in those days was called Covent Garden. And after the war, of course, Covent Garden was restarted, reignited by the conductor Carl Rankel. So my father was playing under people like uh, Kubelik and Scholte. And um, the, the opera singers of the day were people like Joan Sutherland. I remember my mother telling me that he came back very excited one day to say he had just heard the most beautiful voice imaginable and it was Maria Callas and somewhere, I, I have to find it somewhere, there was a recording of my father playing uh, in Norma that was a recording of um, Callas uh, on the same CD. Uh, that, yes, <laughs> that's that's um, that's really quite special. But he, he also... Um, did something else. After the war, he started two uh, chamber music groups. And I think I think they would now be called flexi ensembles. And I don't think there was anything quite like it before. And he had people who then went on to become a little bit famous. Um, Janet Baker sang in his group. Heather Harper was another. Uh, John Williams, the guitarist. <laughs> um, and... Um, Julian Bream. In fact, he had he he would often have to submit, obviously, programs to music societies around the country. And in those days, there were a lot of music societies. Sadly, less now. But there was one wonderful letter that came back from one of these societies in Scotland, um, saying, "Yes, we love the look of your program, but um, we we won't be wanting." the guitarist, because we don't consider the guitar to be a musical instrument. And <laughs> the performer was Julian Bream. So, <laughs> yes, strange situation. And and on another occasion as well, he engaged a cellist um, who, who said after a little while, he was terribly sorry he would have to give that up because he'd been invited by a string quartet or, or a string trio who were looking for a cello um, and he would ha he couldn't do the same. He he couldn't play in a string quartet and in my father's plexi ensemble. Um, and the string quartet was the Amadeus. 
Um, yeah, and the the other thing, of course, is um, my my mother absolutely loved what she maintained was that she was the person who kept my father in business because she paid for tickets to go and hear him play. Hmm. Um, but the the radio was on all the time, and in those days, this shows how very old I am. Um, it was the home service, and at that time, I think Lord Reith um, had a, had a policy of not splitting things up but keeping music on the speech channel so my father played a lot on uh, on the home service and so it was quite nice to listen ah oh, there's your father playing and of course it it was all live did you get to go to Covent Garden and and see performances with him, with him playing I, I did yes um and on, on one occasion I was taken to see uh, I was told it was Julius Caesar um, and Joan Sutherland was singing. And in the in- interval, I said to my mother, I can't understand a word she's singing. And she said, well, it's not surprising. It's in Italian. So, yeah, she should have said it's Giulio Cesare. And then that would have that would have solved the problem. Then, then you'd have known. Then you'd have known, of course. Of course yeah. So what, what was your... Um... Obviously, you were immersed in this kind of very musical household. Did you start by by studying some instruments? What kickstarted um, it for you? Yes, I yes started at the age of seven, learning the piano and and other instruments as well. I mean, the thing that I enjoyed most at that age was improvising, much to the despair of my mother, who thought I ought to be um, doing some proper practice, but. Um, she later realised that improvisation's got something to do with composing. Did that then lead into your first forays into, into actually writing down uh, some of these improvisations? So were those, were those your first compositions? Y- yes, yes, I suppose they were. I mean, just, oh, gosh, you know, can one look back at one's childhood essays? And But, but yes, I think, yes, I can see the connection there. Um, and I, I did um, have, I, I went to a very curious uh, music teacher who was very keen on um, writing creatively. So, w- yes, every week I would I would write write a little something there. But you know, when you look back <clears throat> on these childhood things, you think, gosh, what significance is there? But I suppose it all then develops into something else. And where did that development take place? So after school, did you did you study music at university or, or what was your route? Well, um, well going back to school, I, mean, uh, uh, I went to a school in Victoria, um, just around the corner from Westminster Abbey. And the headmistress there was a religious fanatic, which meant that almost every possible occasion we were in Westminster Abbey, either... Um, in the congregation taking part in commemoration services or later in the choir. Um, and, of course, at that time, David Wilcox, Douglas Guest, um, were putting on Matthew, St Matthew Passions and the school took part in the Ripieno, so that was wonderful. But the thing that I cherished most was um, going to Westminster Abbey and it always seemed to be in the dark, the twilight hours, the dark, dark hours, going through the shadowy cloister, um, and then singing in the the organ loft. And I remember Simon Preston was suborganist at the time. I think he was there the whole time I was at school. So, so all of that was quite a sort of um, 
wonderful musical experience to be in that space and to take part in the the singing as well. And then after that, I went to university. Um, and uh, and and then at some point, I did a PGCE and teaching. Um, my father was so discouraging. He said, you know, whatever you do, don't go into the music profession. It's so difficult. Hmm. Um, so I, I started teaching, um, teaching at <clears throat> Trinity College of Music in the junior department and a, and a little bit in the senior department. Um, and and Yehudi Menuhin School as well, uh, and a comprehensive school in South London. Um, so so it was sort of a broad broad mix of teaching, but at Trinity the the ethos there was to teach creative musicianship in a way that was rather like um, learning a language, so that one wasn't superimposing ideas on students, but rather introducing them a new concept, harmonic, melodic, rhythmic, that could be absorbed in a way that, in the way that we learn new words as a child. Um, and I, I love, I love that teaching. I did, I did it for 25 years um, until at a certain point, I, I thought I'm, I must now spend my time writing music, which is what I always wanted to do. Well, thank goodness you did. Uh, for, uh, for, uh, that's great. Yeah, we've all benefited from that. Um, I'm interested to hear you say what a, uh, an influence and inspiration you took from, from those services at, at Westminster Abbey. Do, do you sing yourself? I do, yes. Yeah. yes. Do, you, do you still yes. sing? Yes, I mean, I, I, don't, I wish I did now because I wish I had more time to do it, but I've, I've sung in all sorts of choirs, big amateur choirs, small semi-professional choirs, so um, just about everything. So it, it's something, I think, that, that really feeds in, doesn't it, into the way one writes. Absolutely, and that's certainly evident uh, in your music. So much of your music that, that I've uh, encountered and performed has been vocal music. Um, and I think you've got a, a, the reason I ask about whether you sing yourself, because you seem to have a, uh, an intuitive understanding of, of how vocal lines work for the voice. All of your pieces are, are, are very singable, I find. Um, and I think let's, this sort of leads us quite nicely into, into our next track, um, which has got some absolutely exquisite writing uh, for the soprano solo here. Um, this is a piece, Standing As I Do Before God, could you just tell us a little bit about the background to this fairly extraordinary poem and the story behind it? This was a piece that was commissioned by Suspiri just to mark um, the centenary of the, the First World War. And um, I, I was always very aware of a statue to Edith Cavell. Uh, we, we would often go to um, Trafalgar Square, uh, the, what then became the ENO, uh, it wasn't when I was young. It was um, a Cinerama at the time. Um, but I, I remember seeing her statue and, and reading what it says around the bottom of the statue on the plinth. Um, Patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. And the the story behind um, this woman in, and what she did in, in the First World War, I think is quite extraordinary. She... 
saved the lives of probably around about 200 allies by getting them out of Belgium. She was a nurse in Brussels and uh, she sheltered them in her hospital and somehow managed to get money, funding to get them out of the country. And this was when the Germans came into Belgium and occupied it. Um, And they were smuggled out through Holland back into Britain. Her undoing was that many of these soldiers wrote thank you letters to her. And that was, of course, evidence as to what she had been doing. And so she was a a traitor. So Edith Cavell was arrested and uh, tried for treason. And in uh, October, October the 12th, she was taken out and shot. The night before she was taken out, um, the Reverend Gehan took down some notes. And one of the things she said was, I have seen death so often that it's not strange or fearful to me, standing, as I do, in view of God and eternity. I realise patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. And what I did was to ask Sean Street, a poet and broadcaster, if he would write a poetical reflection around these words, which is what he did. So that that is really what this is all about, standing as I do before God.
Standing as I do before God, the words of Edith Cavell reworked by poet Sean Street, performed by the choir Suspiri with soprano Susanna Fairburn and conducted by Christopher Watson. Cecilia, I think that's the most wonderful, haunting, evocative and very moving piece. I absolutely love it. Oh, you are kind. It, it, it's, it's so interesting. She was such an extraordinary woman and I've got a feeling that her death... Uh, really caused many young men to sign up again. And I think it's it's also thought that it was possible that uh, it was another contributing factor to America joining the war at the time. But I, I remember the BBC singers sang it in, in part of a European uh, programme and somebody had come from Brussels to record it or was producing the programme. And she said that both her children had been born in the Edith Cavill Hospital in Brussels. Um, her, her name is far and wide, really. It's funny how these connections sort of spring up, don't they, with works that, uh, and, and indeed with lives as well. Um, I mean, you and I met uh, some years ago uh, when I, I made a recording of your, your Starbat Mater. Um, but since then, and even in just in, in doing a bit of preparation for this programme, I realised that the connections between you and I sort of interlink. Um, Harriet McKenzie, the violinist who we're going to hear from at the end of the programme, is someone who I work with uh, quite frequently now. Um, so, you know, we always say that music's a small world, but uh, these, uh, <laughs> these connections run deep, don't they? They do, they do. And it's always a delight. It's a joy, isn't it, when you find these connections. The things, uh, yes, coming together. I'm just going to cut in with a little thought here that, that what an interesting texture that was to hear, sheerly in the style of the singers, because you have Chris Watson, who was a Talis scholar for many years, now moved, uh, works in Australia, um, but with, I think, a fuller, richer soprano sound than you often tend to hear in, in choral music. Uh, and she brought such colour to it. Uh, Susanna Fairburn, really, really interesting. She does a lot of opera work. Um, and I wonder whether you have views, given Cecilia, that your music is performed by a lot of cathedral choirs and conventional choirs on the sort of timbre that you hear. That That is such an interesting question, isn't it? Because it, it's the purity, isn't it, of the sound. Um, I, I absolutely love love that. I, I love the cathedral sound. I also like... It, it depends on the context, doesn't it? And I think as far as Susanna Fairbairn is concerned, she's an opera singer. Um, and I know, I know Rachel Nichols, who's another wonderful singer, has the ability to sing in that, that pure way, but also she sings Wagner. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's the well, art Rachel. of the singer, isn't it? To be able to, to harness different, Hands, different qualities but you, that's that's part of, i mean you you welcome that sound in that particular piece in your choir because she 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 can turn i mean the, the interesting thing for me was that she was using some of her richer sounds in this context and it just seemed to sound very natural and it wasn't something that any of us should be worried mm. about we mentioned the other day uh, robert about how important it is for singers to be vocally flexible nowadays um you know, one has to be able to sing a, a huge variety of music. But Rachel Nichols, who you mentioned there, is is uh, an, extra, an extraordinary case of someone who, yeah, can be singing Bach one moment uh, and and uh, Wagner the next. Mm. I remember conducting her actually in a program with um, the Huddersfield Choral Society, uh, and she came in as uh, a fairly short notice uh, replacement for soloist. And I remember her saying to me, 
what kind of voice would you like me to sing this with? (laughs) (laughs) For someone to ask, but not only to ask the question, but also to have so many options Mm. at her disposal. Um, Just just sing it how you'd like to. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, that's Rachel. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know Rachel has recorded some of your works, uh, Cecilia, with uh, George Vass. That's right. Yes. And of course, the recording that you did was with George Vass, his orchestra nova, and you performed Starbuck Martyr and sang the baritone solos. I did indeed. indeed. Many, what feels like many, many years ago now. I'm afraid it was. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Looking at your website, I, I was touched but also slightly horrified to see that you've actually got the photo of you and I sitting in front of the recording desk where I've got ridiculously long hair oh, um, oh but yeah. we, do we do we look as though we know what we're doing <laughs> well you do <laughs> oh no you did <laughs> so does this mean Aim, we're actually going to hear you sing on Coral Chihuahua for the first time uh <laughs> yes I think so I was Cecilia asked whether we could include this track so um we'll hear that in just a moment George Vass I should just give a, a shout out to um, those of you who know George will know him probably principally as a conductor, of course, but also as the director of the Prestine Festival, um, where he has given literally decades of support to um, up and coming composers, but also established composers like yourself, Cecilia. He's been tireless in his championing of new, new music, hasn't he? He really has. I mean, I think he was described on uh, perhaps Petrock Trelawney described him as the saviour of British music, contemporary <laughs> music. Um, and and really, I think the thing that is so extraordinary is that he seemed to be able to encompass everything. He gives such support and encouragement to uh, all ages. And of course, when he was um, supporting me, I was actually only just starting because, as I said earlier, my my trajectory is a bit unconventional. It took me many years before I actually started composing. I think I was 49, 50. Um, I'd always wanted to do it. And at college, at, at university, I had won composition prizes and rather arrogantly thought that one one could just write it. But I subsequently went to study with Joseph Horowitz, a wonderful Joseph Horowitz, a little bit with Robert Sachs, and, and then with Adam Gorb, who's head of composition at the uh, Royal Northern College of Music. Um, yes, so so I think it was in something like 2001, George Vass um, offered me an association with two of his choirs, and sang the Starbuck Martyr um, was one of the ones that was written for um, his St Albans Choral Society for its Diamond Jubilee. And um, yeah, it's a it's a challenging text to set, I would imagine. Um, I'm actually in York today because uh, I'm rehearsing with the university choir. We're giving a performance of Dvorak's Starbat Mater in June. Um, and it's it's a text that it's, it's always fascinated me. And I've, I've sung lots of different settings, of course, most recently, James Macmillan's uh, Oh, fantastic yes. setting but yeah. I just conducted a three choir setting by Felicia Inerio there's the mm. Palestrina double choir setting of course lots of them is it a daunting text to, to sit down and think you know what are you, what are you going to do with this well indeed I mean it, it's I suppose the, the most important thing is structuring it isn't it it's the same as with any composition how to find a structure that gives it a kind of direction and in some ways, I think I'd, I, I 
structured it so that it's a seven movement work. Um, yes, I think it's seven movements. It's difficult to remember. Uh, yes, it, yes, it's so it's seven with with chorales in the middle. So sort of really sort of harking back to some kind of um, Bach-like um, structure there. Um, and you have two of the two of the baritone solos, both very very different. Um, one of them really quite spiky um, about Jesus and torment and scourging. Um, Jesus and torment submitting to the scourge. <clears throat> but the the second one is is much more um, uh, deeply deeply felt. Really sharing the agony of the wounded son. It 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 is hard, isn't it? To it it I think probably the most challenging thing is finding the contrast and making the whole work so that it it has a an, an arrival point and perhaps a sort of moment of release at the end. Interestingly, the uh, the person in whose memory I've written it in uh, Father Michael Pryor was connected with West Westminster Cathedral. And he took me to see the crucifix at the um, in the cathedral. When you go behind what you see from the front view, you see the um, Starbuck Della Rosa, Starbuck Marta Della Rosa, on the other side. So there were two different um, views of the cross.
my colleague Eamon Dugan, the baritone soloist there in the fifth movement of the Starbuck Mater by today's guest Cecilia McDowell. That was Orchestra Nova conducted by George Vass um, on the Dutton Epoch label. Cecilia, is composing a stressful um, process for you? Are you are you deadlines driven? I mean, listening to that, it doesn't sound it, but I just remember that Ravel quote about the um, the slow movement from the G major piano concerto, which sounded so easy. And he said, gosh, how I sweated over every note. Isn't that interesting? I mean, sometimes I find the slow movements are are the most difficult in a way because um and, and take me longer to write than a quick than a fast movement and i think one of the reasons for this is that i feel every single note has to count every every nuance has to be there for a very special reason um whereas i i think with with something that is a faster tempo there are all sorts of things that can happen uh it it's not that there's less energy or uh, input put into faster music somehow it just seems easier <laughs> um, but I, I think everything um, everything one writes it, it, it begins by being agony <laughs> there is always the moment when you know it cannot be put off any longer I don't know whether I'm alone in this but there are the moments of dawning it has to happen now um, it sounds like so, Douglas Adams, you know, who would always uh, have some more toast or uh, another bath before, <laughs> before you know, the, the publisher's letters becoming in from saying, oh, we must have this, you know, fourth deadline is passed. It, isn't, isn't it Douglas Adams who said something like, there's nothing quite like uh, the, the deadlines whooshing past? Oh, yes, the sound of the deadline whooshing past, <laughs> that's right. Oh, dear. Now, yeah. But you, you're, I mean, the, the, I don't know your music as well as I hadn't sung as much of your music as Eamon um, but there there are a lot of contemplative pieces in there but the two we did with the university choir one particular the De Profundis has this wonderful vigorous lower part declaiming the text while the sopranos are sort of melismering um, uh, above and I just thought what a great way to set text because it is difficult I mean physically it is difficult to hear soprano text in a way uh, that it isn't for basses and tenors so much and in that piece, which has this um, poem commemoration of the sort of trench life in the in the First World War, um, yeah. I just couldn't imagine a, a clearer and a better way of setting it. Well, what a lovely thing to say. I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Reading that text, it is so earthy um, and and present and about the rats that are invading the trench um, and the, the reality of when you're in trench warfare you have to move on it's the mud it's it's all these nasty nasty things that are confronted but somehow I thought by siphoning off the top top layer and making them as as angelic as as possible that it would perhaps set things uh, you know in um in contrast I remember wasn't there something called the vision of Mons um, in the First World War, when an angel was said to appear to soldiers, mm. um, and and I suppose it, it's it's just thinking that maybe maybe that that's the thing that can, can get one through the horror of it all.
Cecilia, we've just been talking about your setting of De Profundis, Night Raid. You seem to have a, a nose for, for finding stories or texts uh, which are very emotive and, and evocative. Is that something that you, you actively seek out when you're looking for, for subjects to write about? That's a really interesting question because I don't think I've ever sought that out in a, a very self-conscious way. I I am drawn to stories of the past where I feel it's a good good thing to bring them into the present and perhaps bring them to people who perhaps know nothing about it. There, there's something that I wrote called Night Flight and it is about an American aviatrix, Harriet Quimby, and when I was commissioned to write something from the uh, Musique Cordiale, a French festival, uh, some years ago for 2012, I was looking for something that would perhaps create an entente cordiale between our two countries. And I found that uh, Harriet Quimby had actually flown across uh, from this country to France in her little plane in 1912, three years after Louis Blériot did the opposite, came from France to this country, and of course he crash-landed, but she didn't. She flew across in just under under an hour in the fog and and landed her craft safely there, and nobody seems to have heard of her. And when I was looking into why this might be, because that's an extraordinary thing for a woman to do it, uh, well, yes, to, to do it at all, but uh, why hasn't anybody heard of her? And of course, it coincided with the day that the Titanic sank. And so, of course, she was obliterated naturally by the Titanic news, which dominated the news for weeks after that. Um, and uh, later, just three months later, she died in a demonstration um, in Boston giving a demonstration, oddly enough, in a Blerio plane. And it just pitched forward and it threw her out and her passenger. And that was that was the end of her. So I, I it, it's finding finding things like this that I feel I find fascinating and would like to share with somebody else and, and feel that there's something within it that is is something to draw out of it. It's so it, these stories always interest me. Um, but but again, it's not not that I set out to to do that because there are many works I've written that don't have that kind of story behind them. The last tracks that we're going to hear are from um, an extraordinary work, "The Girl from Aleppo." I mean, you mentioned uh, right at the start, the start of the program um, this theme of of displacement and people seeking refuge, which of course is so prescient at the moment. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about about this story and your way into it? Back in 2017, the National Children's Choir of Great Britain commissioned me to write a piece, and the the specific brief was really um, so challenging. It was to write a piece about children in conflict, and that's that's a tricky one, isn't it? I uh, asked Kevin Crossley-Holland if he would work with me on this, and in... I think it was 2017, he went to Dubai uh, to the literary festival there, the Arab Emirates Literary Festival. And he met there a girl called Nujin Mustafa. And Nujin and Christina Lam, the journalist and BBC reporter, 
Christina Lam, and she had written a book called The Girl from Aleppo, and they were talking about it. Kevin was fascinated by this and immediately thought that it would be something that could be made into a libretto. She herself is quite extraordinary. She has cerebral palsy, so is confined to a wheelchair. But the extraordinary situation was, of course, in... um, 2014, bombs were falling on Aleppo. And, uh, you know, it, it is just heartrending to think that I believe the same general who was given the responsibility of annihilating Aleppo um, is, is now sort of part of the Mariupol situation. So um, Nujin and her sister escaped and they, uh, they traversed three and a half thousand miles from Syria to Germany through nine different countries to arrive in Germany. And it was at the time the German Chancellor Angela Merkel welcomed a million Syrian refugees. So quite an extraordinary story. But as far as Nujin was concerned, she learned her English. I think this is amazing. She learned English from watching television. And she she watched uh, American sitcoms, cookery programs, David Attenborough, wildlife programs. So when she was traveling uh, from Turkey through to Germany, she became the de facto leader of her group because she was the one who had the language skills to communicate with border guards. And um, what I find extraordinary is that Nujin didn't appear to be terrified by any of this. She had lived her life on the fifth floor, in a fifth floor apartment, unable to leave the house because of her disability. So this was for her an adventure and um, quite quite extraordinary. I I met her, well, before lockdown in 2020. Um, I went to Dubai um, to hear... Uh, performance. It was conducted by Robert Johnson, um, the BBC of the BBC Singers. He conducted um, the f- performance there at, as part of the the literary festival, and it was um, very affecting to hear Nujin hearing it for the first time. She she didn't seem to suffer after hearing it. I'm glad to say, uh, could have been interesting. And your score, Cecilia, has a lovely picture of her and her sister, sister pushing her in her wheelchair. You know, how many miles, I don't know. but um, Yeah, three and a half thousand, three and a half thousand miles. It, it, it's, I mean, presumably at some point they got on buses and, and of course they were on a boat, a terrifying journey, um, travelling at night uh, to avoid detection. Yes, but it is a very touching photograph, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. The two movements that we're going to listen to, just to, to round us off, Thousands Million at the Border, and I'd Never Seen the Sea Before, um, both employing slightly different vocal techniques uh, in the second, um, the singers producing the sounds of the sea. Um, and at the start, Thousands Million at the Border, we hear these thousands of voices, not sung, but sort of whispered and spoken. Thank you. 
thousands milling at the border, and I've never seen the sea before. Two movements from Cecilia McDowell's cantata, The Girl from Aleppo. That was the National Children's Choir of Great Britain, conducted by Dan Ludford Thomas, with Harriet McKenzie on violin and Claire Dunham playing piano. Wonderful evocative sounds there, Cecilia, and brilliant to hear those young voices singing uh, such an inspiring story. Yeah, what I found really interesting was working with Dan Ladford Thomas and, and the National Children's Choir, um, how touching it was, how affected they were by the story. And what what really interested me was... Of course, they knew nothing about this beforehand, but they were asking questions and wanting to know much more about it. For instance, the one with um, the uh, the first one that you played, thousands milling at the border, there is mention of heirlooms, all these things that they had to go without. They had nothing, absolutely nothing. And I think that that really, really startled them into thinking about this. But But wonderful to work with young voices. And I think what's been interesting about this particular piece is it's been sung by 300 it's been sung by 24 16 so small groups big groups adults children um and it's and in america and australia and and sweden so it's been it's been around quite a bit in a short space of time even though even though we've had the pandemic in between so it's and and it's always a an interest and delight to write for children's voices. That's been quite a large part of your output, or at least a, an important part, writing for for schools uh, and youth choirs. Mm. Well, I I must say I, I I enjoy the whole spectrum. I love writing for uh, young voices. I love writing for professional voices and amateur voices. So everything, the whole whole spectrum, I find interesting and each very different. One commission of note of recent times was the uh, the carol you wrote for the service of nine lessons and carols at King's Cambridge uh, in 2021. That's right, yes. Uh, that was a, a great delight to be offered that commission. I mean, it's really such a, a special and prominent time. Um, but it was, it was wonderful to hear it um, live and to be, be at King's, to hear Dan Hyde and the, the choir of King's College sing it so immaculately um very special it was it was interesting to look for the words as well because um i i was keen to find something that that was much of the past i know that the the words there is no rose have been set many times really beautifully by so many people benjamin Britten, of course john jubert um and many others um but i i just think these words are quite exquisite the, the choir of Trinity College Cambridge have uh, recently released uh, a recording of your works. Is that like a sort of retrospective or is it very much looking forward? Is, are there a lot of new works on it as well? If I'm honest, I actually can't remember exactly <laughs> what's on it. There, there is some, something that is relatively new, which which actually isn't the vocal part of it, but it's an organ work called um, o Antiphon Sequence, which Alexander Hamilton uh, performs deliciously on that but yes so standing as i do is one of the works that they have recorded on it most of the works are fairly recent and they're all sacred works um and it was absolutely delightful that it was issued last april just in time for a significant birthday of mine very nicely put um and <laughs> yeah. just before we wrap up just looking ahead um 
in terms of the people who would be listening to this program, what have you got coming up? What can we expect coming out of the McDowell stable? There are a number of things. Um, the, 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 probably the first, first thing is, is a, a work called Music of the Stars, which is going to have a performance in a few weeks' time by the chamber singers of Iowa in America, obviously. <laughs> um, and it, it is, uh, it's, it's a work, actually, that um, I realised as I was writing it that the text was of people of diversity. So um, each, each text uh, has, is to do with American literature and astrophysics. So um, one of them is actually, one of the movements is to, is something that I've taken from an American astrophysicist. One of the movements is taken from the American astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who somehow has the ability to explain science in a very understandable way. At least one thinks it's understandable as you listen to it. It's only just later you realise you've forgotten what it all means. But it, um, I've got so many... Sorry, this sounds awful, doesn't it? I've got so many coming up that I, it's difficult to remember which ones to pull out. And I believe I am writing something to mark the Platinum Jubilee of the Queen. And that will be, I think, in September. Well, it's wonderful to hear that you're so busy. I've got to say, astrophysics and choral music coming together seems like a, a, a suitable way to, to, leave, to, to leave this programme uh, and have us looking at the stars. Brian Cox would be proud of us, oh. I think. Yes. Cecilia, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a real pleasure. I could have carried on chatting to you all day. Um, and thank you for introducing us to, to some of your music and uh, letting us learn about your background and your, your process uh, and I'm looking forward to performing many more of your works in the years ahead. Well, thank you so much, Eamon. It's really been most enjoyable. We're also grateful to Cleveland Chamber Choir, conducted by Scott McPherson, for permission to use that excerpt of their live and face-masked recording of Cecilia's Day Profundis. Greetings across the pond to them. That's all for now, folks. Please join us again for another episode of Choral Chihuahua. We look forward to seeing you soon. Bye for now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.